Amen. That's good singing. Turn, please, in your Bible, and your New Testament, to the book of Luke. Luke's Gospel, please. We want to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. I want to read a few verses here. Very well-known portion of Scripture. Right in, dare I say, the very shadow of the cross. Luke chapter 19. The first little section of this chapter deals with how the Lord Jesus Christ went after one individual. I love the way we read. So often in Scripture, how the Lord goes after the ones and twos. You know, sometimes we try to hide in the crowd. Zacchaeus did that. He was nearly lost in the crowd. Yet the Lord singled him out that day. And here we have him recorded for us in the scriptures of truth for all eternity. But we want to read, and indeed begin our reading this evening, at that verse after that account. Verse 11, really the account of Zacchaeus, how the Lord dealt with that man, is recorded for us. Luke chapter 19, verse 1, right through to verse 10. But let us read from verse 11 just now. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Now it gives, it, it opens up with this little conjunction, this little joining word, the word and. In fact, you'll notice chapter 19 opens with that word as well. And, it is one continuous narrative. The previous chapter does that as well. I'm just flicking back through here. Uh, chapter 17 opens up with the word then. Chapter 16, the word and, it is all one continuous narrative. But here in verse 11, and it is linked, we will show you how it is linked this evening in the will of the Lord. But let's read from verse 11. And as they heard these things. Now, who are the they? There were, of course, those who were poking and prodding and asking questions of every single thing that the Savior was doing. In fact, this is the they that's mentioned there in verse 7. Look at verse 6. He made haste, came down, received him, that's Christ, received Christ joyfully, and when they saw it, they all murmured. The next lot of verses, right up to the end of that little section, to verse 10, essentially, it looks like the Savior has ignored those individuals but far from it because he comes back to them right now in verse 11. That's what I mean. This whole section's linked. And as they heard these things, the detractors, those that murmured against every action of the Savior, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, these are the words of Christ. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This is the theme of our meeting this evening. This is the theme of this parable, the return of Christ. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Now, think of verse 14. 
Not only did they think it, that would have been bad enough. Not only did they even go as far as whisper it and vocalize it within their little group, that would have been even worse. But this is far worse again. Read the verse again. Let's, Let's try to put ourselves into this situation and actually understand what this is saying. His citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. Such was the hatred. Such was the animosity that they actually went to the bother to send the message after him. And it came to pass, and that's a little Hebrewism that we often read in the New Testament, that's one word in the original. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thy authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. Another came, saying, Lord, behold, Here is thy pound, singular. Thy pound, which I have kept, led up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou. Now look at the language that's employed here. In fact, I can put it this way, the strongest possible language. Out of thine own mouth, verse 22, will I judge thee, thy wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore, then givest not thy money, my money unto the bank, that at my coming I might have gained mine own with usury. In other words, Even with the interest rate alone, I would have gained something. But no, it was hidden. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it unto him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. And then he continues in Aradah from verse 26, For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, and he goes back to them. It's nearly like as if they're ignored, but he goes back to them. The enemies of verse 14. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. Amen. We do pray that the Lord himself might bless this, the reading of his own inspired word tonight. Let us, with God's word open before us, just take a moment and ask the author of the book to come alongside us and to give us that word that we need and to open our understanding this evening. Father, we do thank thee that we have the civil and religious liberty to be able to come to a meeting like this, to be able to open up thy word in this manner. 
to be able to study it even together. And I pray, Lord, as we open this, the bread of life, as it's broken before us, I pray, Lord, that thou might be made known to us even as we read later on in the same book of how the risen Savior was made known to the two in the road to a mess in the breaking of the bread. And Lord, I pray that thou would speak to us tonight, that thou would encourage us and challenge us, that thou would even bring things to my remembrance, and that thou would leave us tonight with a blessing. For thy glory alone we do pray. Amen. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ had, as we read this portion together, we'll see it clear, yet again caused no small stir in yet another place. Here in this 19th chapter, we find the Lord Jesus Christ yet again, and can I stress that because it happens, and we'll have it recorded for us in the Gospels so many times, over and over and over again, of how he deals with the individual. But here we have him yet again dealing with a man such as what we find in so many other places. And on this particular occasion we find him actually en route, on his way, with his face, as it were, steadfast toward Calvary. I have no doubt the crosswork of Christ his central focus, his all in all, and yet he takes time to deal with this individual, this man, in this, let's face it, this cursed place, this cursed city of Jericho. In fact, the first 10 verses of this 19th chapter, we've mentioned this already, detail for us step by step of how the Lord Jesus Christ went to that place to reach that hated wee man, that wee man that we know so well about, know so much about, that wee man Zacchaeus, that public and that tax collector that we read off in those first few verses. Of course, we all know the story of Zacchaeus. We know he, how he did exactly as he was bidden to do whenever the Savior came to the base of that tree and stopped, paused there for a moment, looked up to where he was and said those words that are recorded for us there at the end of verse 5. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. We read then of how that wee man, Zacchaeus, did exactly as he was bidden to do. He received the Savior with open arms, with joy in fact. We read about the joy there. I think sometimes Christians today lack that joy. We need to turn that frown upside down. We need to show others that we have been with Jesus. We need to be like Moses did when he came down to the mount. That wasn't a fake thing. That wasn't something that was put on. That was something that everybody else witnessed and knew that he had been with the Lord. Zacchaeus showed that real joy. But then we come across, as we always do, opposition. We mentioned that from verse 7. And when they saw it, they all, look at that word all, I've it underlined in my copy of scripture here. They all murmured saying that he was going to be guest with a man that is a sinner. You can nearly hear the hiss of these individuals as they were so annoyed, so taken aback about what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing. And then in verse 11 here, we, where we take up the reading, really, it tells us that he added unto them, speak this parable unto them, as he began to teach and to warn important truths about what was to come. And I want us to think about this portion, this, 
These verses that we have recorded here for us from verse 11, I suppose right down to that end of that section, verse 28. Tonight, for the few moments that we have, I want us to look at them under the, the banner or under the heading of challenges. I believe we need to be challenged tonight from God's Word. Are we challenged when we lift God's word? Are we challenged when we read and as we study the book? Because there are challenges here, and particularly tonight, challenges in the light of Christ's second coming. That's something that we don't really hear preached on too much nowadays. Do we live in the light of his second coming? Do we live in the sure and certain hope that he is coming again someday? Do we? I think the scriptural knowledge in so many today is through the floor. I drove a bus not that long ago in a particular area, and I was speaking to two young girls on that bus. We are talking about different Bible stories and all the rest of it. In fact, there was Catholic schools and Protestant schools in my bus, and I am amazed to find that the children, believe it or not, the children from the Catholic schools actually know more about biblical matters than those that are so-called Christian homes. I'm finding that over and over and over again as I'm chatting away as I'm driving my bus, believe it or not. And there was one of the conversations come around to the subject of Christ's second coming, and that was the first that those individuals from a Christian home had ever heard that thing vocalized ever in their lives before. Certainly that they were able to recall to me. Let me say it. Let me make it as clear as possible. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again someday. And I believe here we've got challenges in the light of that second coming. I want us to look at this parable. Now we'll have to open this up a little bit. We'll spend a little time on it. We'll study around the scriptures tonight. And the first thing that we must look at here really is the key to this parable. The key to understanding this parable is given by certain things. Let's consider its content and let's consider its context. What's its context? That word comes from two root words, which means con, means with, and the text, with the text. That's, I suppose, plain enough with the words that are surrounding it, the context of what comes before it, what comes after it, the context is, if you've ever heard me preach, I'll say a wee phrase so often, maybe I say it too often, context is king. We should never lift anything in Scripture, anything else for that matter, out of its context and deal with it in isolation. We must deal with it as it lies in the Word of God. Now, where does this lie? Where does this particular portion, where does this passage lie? Let me tell you, it lies just a few chapters before the Lord Jesus Christ gives us all upon the cross of Calvary. Just a few chapters before the Jews conspire to capture him, before they accuse him falsely, before they crucify my Savior. Here he is in chapter 19, standing just a few days before the cross. And here's a bit that often gets me. He knew it. He knew it. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, and dealing with his people, with the likes of you and I, very often protects us from things, protects us from knowing too much, from seeing what's around the corner. If you were to run a marathon, you'd rather run it on a whole lot of wee, wee narrow streets. 
because then you get the next target, the next corner, and the next corner, and the next corner. You wouldn't want to go out to some of those salt flats in, in America, somewhere where the, you can nearly see the finish line 26.2 miles away. That would put you off, wouldn't it? And the Lord protects us like that very often. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the one of whom we're reading here, the one with whom we're dealing with here, was, of course, omniscient. That means that he knows all things. He knew all things. And he knew the end from the beginning. He knew, even at this point, way before this point, he knew every hammer strike on the face of the cross. He knew every push and every thrust of those crown of thorns that was to come. He knew every blow. He knew every punch. He knew it all. He was standing here just a few days before the cross, and he knew every detail about what was to come. And yet we find him here. In fact, this is probably, in all likelihood, one of the last times the Lord Jesus Christ would ever had opportunity to publicly and freely preach and teach the, the people the way he was doing here. And yet, knowing all of that, he not only went after this individual and won unto himself, this hated we, despised we, nasty we, twisted we man who he turned into a trophy of grace for himself. Not only did he do that, but he took time here to give this and teach this parable concerning what was to come. Look at verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because, the key is given here, because he was nigh to Jerusalem. That word simply means near. Near or nigh to Jerusalem. And because they thought... Look at what it says here. It's as clear as black and white. They thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. This is the subject matter that we're dealing with here. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A subject that we're very often scared to even deal with today. Now if the context gives us a clue to the subject that's been taught here. This verse, the latter part of verse 11 especially, gives us irrefutable evidence of what was about to come was indeed a direct reference to the coming of the kingdom of God. But look at the actual content, not just the context. That's key. But look at the content of this parable as well. Look at the characters that the Savior brings in to this parable here. Throughout this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ references and speaks of different characters, different individuals who are brought in and described by him as he really gives this parable to this largely Jewish audience who had come to hear him. Well, look at verse 12, the first part of it, because there we have the noble man that's mentioned. In fact, that's the first mentioned in the first part of verse 12, but right throughout the 16 verses of this parable, the noble man is mentioned. What's the key to this? Who does this refer to? This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then we have the servants mentioned here as well. First mentioned in verse 13, the first part of verse 13. And again, mentioned right throughout, throughout the passage, the servants. And they speak to us of individuals like you and I have received tonight. Born again believers, the Christian, the servants of the Lord. Servants of the nobleman. And then we have verse 14. In fact, only mentioned there in verse 14 in a very scathing way. We have the citizens of the land. 
It also mentioned there in the last verse, verse 27, the last verse of the parable as well. But by and large, verse 14 contains that reference in which the last verse, verse 27, will have this swift, we have that final end to their opposition, end to that hatred of the nobleman, speaking of the Savior, the one that they just simply rejected out of hand, seemed like, using that unequivocal language that they used there at the end of verse 14. We will not have this man to reign over us. They speak to us of those in the world. Those who are off the world, but those who have rejected Christ and indeed the message of the gospel. Those out there. Those who think we're mad tonight coming into the prayer meeting. But of course we know better because we know that the Lord is here and we know that God hears and answers prayer. But there's something else that I want us to think about here. Something else that is very, very important that I want us to consider before we move on, and that is what the noble man gave to each of his servants. And indeed, the message or the command, verse 13, the command that he gave to them before he departed. Look at verse 13. He called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds. That's very simply one pound each. And said unto them, Occupy, very short message, Occupy till I come. It's short in the English. It's even shorter in the original. Such a short message. Not a big long parting speech. Pithy statement, command, occupy till I come. Now let me submit to you this evening. And I admit I cannot be as dogmatic whenever I say this as I have been with the other comparisons that I've made already. But I believe, in fact I firmly believe, that the pounds that are spoken of here... The pounds in these verses can be taken off. Well, we can take them as talents or we can take them as, as pounds, as, as various things. But we can take these as a picture of our salvation. Now, you think about that. Perhaps the Lord is challenging us this evening. As I believe he was challenging them, way back in Luke chapter 19, just before the cross. Perhaps he's challenging you. I'll tell you, the Lord has been challenging me even this day afresh. What am I? And before I preach to any congregation, I always preach to myself. What am I doing with my salvation? That's the question tonight. That is, in fact, the burning question. It's so easy to sit back and let others do the work. I was preaching at a conference over in Oxford not that long ago a missionary conference. And the pastor that had me over, it was a Baptist church in Oxford, the pastor that had me over to preach at that just told me the details and the times and how many times he wanted me to preach and all the rest of it. And I asked him very directly, I asked him a question, what thrust do you want from the message? Give me some direction because I don't know who you're dealing with. don't know who you have sitting in front of you or who I will have sitting in front of me. And he said this to me, well, he said one thing. The hotter the better. I like that. I went on that. But he also said something else. And this is stuck with me. He said, we are living in a day and generation today when the vast majority of people are more than happy just to sit in the pews and to let others do the work. They're happy to let the oversight spearhead everything and indeed do everything. They're happy to let the, we're talking about particularly a missionary conference, where they're happy to let 
missionary societies go out and do the missionary work. He says, what I've been trying to instill in the people is that we all are in this together. We are all laborers together. Therefore, I ask that question again, not just of this minister standing in the pulpit, but of each and every one of us. Yes, I'm challenged by this. But of every one of us, what are we? What am I? What are you doing with your salvation this evening if you're saved? Is the Lord speaking to you? Has he been speaking to you of late? About what you're doing with that salvation? Are you hiding it away as one did here? That one described as a wicked, strongest possible language. That wicked servant hiding it away. We sometimes hide our salvation away like a passport locked away in the top drawer of the filing cabinet. It's there if we need it. Hide it away in our back pocket so others don't see it, uh, us or judge us by it. I'm reading a book at the minute. I'm reading a whole lot of books, I suppose. Might be better concentrating on two or three rather than so many. But there's a book that I'm carrying in to work with me in any minute I have or read it. It's a best-selling book by the name of Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrandt. I'm sure some of you have read it. The book that I've got my hands on, must have went through a lot of hands. It's all stained and it's all torn and it's all ripped. But I'll tell you, it stirs your soul every time you read it. And there's a little section in it where he says... From his own experience, when he's trying to see others one from behind the iron curtain, that's where the Lord saved him, in Romania and other places, that everybody in that situation who are turned to Christ from communism or the darkness that they're in, every one of them, without exception, he says, every one of them almost immediately is turned into a soul winner for the Lord, even despite the risk. Now you think about that. I think we're far too comfortable in the West. Far too comfortable. We have nothing but, as my brother talks about, first world problems. Talking about the other day, well, you were off work, why? Oh, I slipped and fell getting out of my hot tub. Yep, that's a first world problem. When there's people without clean water. People without the gospel. And yet those of us with the gospel, with ten Bibles who don't want to read it, yet the one with the one page of a Bible will pour over that page. There's a hymn in our hymn book. Oh, it's a lovely hymn. We sang it on the outreach team when we were over in Tavistock last year. Hymn number 94 in the book. The last verse says this. I have it pasted into my notes here. Listen to this. Are we not challenged by this? Jesus, I give thee my heart today. But it doesn't end there. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way. It doesn't even end there. Gladly obeying him, will you say, this will I do with Jesus? What are we doing with our salvation? If this is a picture of our salvation, what are we doing with our salvation? Somebody once said that Christians aren't supposed to tell lies. Neither we are. But all too often we sing lies. What are we doing with our salvation? I'm going to read you a couple of verses, well-known verses. What do we do with our salvation? Do we hide it under a bushel or do we put it on a candlestick? You know the words of the Savior in Matthew 5, verse 15. You know the words well. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. That's the opposite. But it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Do we let our light so shine unto others? 
I was reading the testimony of someone I can't even remember. That's the problem with reading too many books at the one time. You sometimes get mixed up in them. About this individual who got saved. And he got saved because he watched somebody else in their Christian walk. And he said about how this thing must be genuine. Because look at the way they behave. And he got into the word and he read the word and he got saved even before he got near a church. Reading the life of someone else. And picking up God's word and God's word and reading it. What does our lives say about us? In Mark 4 verse 21, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. It would be a waste of a candle. A waste of a life. Is a candle bought to be put under a bushel or under a bed? Or to be, and not to be set on a candlestick? Even don't the children sing, This little light of mine, I ain't going to let it shine. May the Lord fan that flame within us. May we tell others about the hope that lies within us. Let us think about something else here. We've thought about the key and the characters and all the things that are in this. But look at verse 15 for a second or two. Because here we have, uh, and this is a chilling thought for every child of God. Sometimes we sort of think that there will be no day of reckoning for the believer. There will be. And there will be a summons coming. Here's the summons of the master. Verse 15 from Luke chapter 19, our portion. And it came to pass, that little Hebrewism, that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, this speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back again to this sin-cursed earth, where he will set up that millennial kingdom that we read of in Revelation chapter 20. When he returns, what will happen? Let's read. He commanded these servants. Remember that speaks about the born again Christian. He commanded these servants to be called unto him. To literally stand in his presence and to give an account. Let's read it. To be called unto him to whom he had given the money. That he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Now what a challenge to us this evening. Especially whenever we consider this passage in the light that we ought to. And I think we're nearly afraid to look at anything that's anyway remotely eschatological. What's that big word mean? To do with the last days, the end times, the second coming of Christ again. We're nearly afraid to look at those portions. But we must realize this evening that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again someday soon. What will he find us doing? Turn through, please. To the end of your New Testament, First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses that far too many are ignorant of today. Let's read from verse 16, 17, 18. Because there is great, as verse 18 puts it, these are words that we refrain for the for the grave side. You know, ladies and gentlemen, these are verses that we should live by. These are verses that tell us some of the events that will happen upon the Lord's second coming, on his second advent, upon his appearing in the, in the heavens. In fact, look from verse 14 down through that passage. This is Paul writing to a church full of Christians. That's the context. 
That's him writing to the Christian church that's gathered there at that little place called Thessalonica. Let's translate it into this little place here in Crossgar. What does he have to say to us? Because let me say this. The message does not change. The facts of the matter do not change. What was applicable to be told to them then still is to be fulfilled even for us this evening in 2023. For if we believe that Jesus died, of course we do believe that, Easter was only a few weeks ago, and rose again, how vital that doctrine is, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. He ties in the future resurrection with the resurrection that's already happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how real this is. Look at verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, that's his second coming, shall not prevent them which are asleep, those that have already gone to their graves, died in Christ. That's who that refers to. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and let me say, there's nothing secret or there's nothing quiet about this. The voice of the archangel, the trump of God, what will happen then? Read it in the end of verse 16. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, and in eschatology, the word then is so key, it gives sequence. Then, verse 17, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, thus the them from the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ, who were risen, caught up together with them, verse 17, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then we can't forget verse 18 because that's the reason he gives all this, for our comfort. Now, do we realize this evening Believer, do we realize, dear Christian, this evening that each and every one of us will stand one day before the one who made us? Before the triune God, before the judgment bar of God, and we will give an account of our lives, of our actions, of our inactions. And really, that's what this passage is about. There's other passages, and we, I think we as a, as, as a denomination especially, and we're right to do it at times, uh, we, we like to focus upon that which is done that shouldn't be done. I think it's Catechism number 14 tells us the answer to the question, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto our transgression of the law of God. Two parts to sin, in other words. Doing what we shouldn't do. We're quick to highlight that. But there's that whole other side of that coin. Not doing what we should be doing. Does that not challenge us? Does that not challenge you as it challenges me? What am I not doing what I should be doing? I'm sure you've heard of Archbishop Usher. Archbishop Usher was a friend to Presbyterianism, unlike many of his colleagues. He was the highest-ranking Church of, Church of Ireland clergyman, I suppose, in, in the country. He was Archbishop of Armagh, the most senior man in the church at that time, in fact, for over 30 years, from his appointment to the office way back in 1625 until the Lord called him home in 1656. He died, I think, over in Surrey over in his home place. But he was a godly saint, a godly man. 
He's famous for a lot of things, but he's probably most famous for this that he said on his deathbed. I think he collapsed and he, he, he lay on his deathbed for something like two days before he eventually died from internal bleeding or something like that. But it's noted down, it's recorded of this famous utterance from his deathbed. What did he say? He said, O Lord, forgive me for my sins of omission. That's what this parable is all about. We have three individuals given here. Each of them given a gift of one pound. That we're saying tonight we can take as salvation of our salvation. What are we doing with it? One man came back with ten pounds. Ten souls won through his efforts. Another man came back with five pounds. Five souls won through his effort. And the other man all the while, that wicked, that slothful, that lazy servant, hid his salvation in the ground. Oh, what's, what's the challenge to us even this evening? I want you to turn just for a second or two, for time is gone. Romans chapter 14. Again, the context of all these pastoral epistles, Paul was writing. Paul wrote some 14 books of the New Testament. He was the principal writer under God, of course, writing under inspiration. Paul was writing to bodies of believers like you and I, huddled around waiting for the next installment. Think of the excitement that they read these words with. He was writing to the church gathered at Rome, Romans chapter 14, verse 9. He was writing to the Christians. That's the context here always. Look at verse 10. Just for the sake of time, we'll go there. Romans 14, verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? We're so quick to do that, aren't we? Point the finger. You remember, every time you point the finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Look what they're doing. Look what I'm not doing times three. But anyway, that's the way we are. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? Dismiss the effort that he's doing. Set it not thy brother. For we shall all... We're so quick to point to the unsaved, aren't we? But we shall all, the context here, it's to believers. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Full stop, new sentence. He goes in and makes it even stronger in verse 11. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every, I've got underlined here, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us, Remember, this is Paul writing here. He knows he's going to heaven, and yet he brings himself. This is not to the unsaved. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You know, it's so easy for us to, live, to miss this. Oh, I, I, I read that passage over and over and over again. And the question that keeps coming to my mind, as the others, as the other servants were laboring and, and seeing their pound multiplied over and over again, one of them fivefold, one of them tenfold, what was this man doing the whole time? He was wasting his time. He was squandering his time. He was not doing what he should have been, that's for sure. I worked it out here. I got my calculator right. You know what this is? This figure is? 86,400. What is that figure? 86,400. I'm going to tell you what it is. 86,400 seconds in a 24-hour day. What are we doing with our seconds? What are we doing with our minutes? What are we doing with our hours, our days, our energy, our time, our lips? 
What are we doing with our salvation? Ephesians chapter 5 puts it in perspective. Verse 15, 16, 17. Again, Paul writes to the Christian church at Ephesus. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, comma. He goes straight in to deal with this very issue about time wasting. Let me tell you this. Oh, this is a real bolt to my heart. Many times you go on to flick through something on the phone and you realize you've lost half an hour an hour. You go to do something that is totally superfluous, useless, worthless, just a waste of time. Look what it says there in Ephesians 15, 16. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. What are we doing with our salvation? Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. These three verses are linked. We sometimes break them up in their, in their verse divisions. The original scriptures weren't broken up in verse divisions. Sometimes, yes, it's great that they are. It's handy to find things and reference and all the rest of it. But sometimes we, we, we lose the ability to read on through that division and see what the Lord is really saying. In Colossians we read in chapter 4, verse 5, we're to walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. That is what the Holy Spirit is telling Paul to write to us, that that is the wise thing for us to do. What are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our talents? What are we doing with the abilities and the, and, and the, the context? You think about what we read in John chapter 4, I believe it is, where the woman at the well is dealt with, again, another individual dealt with by the Lord. And then she sat down her water pot. Once the Lord had revealed himself to her to who, as to who he was, she threw down her water pot, anything that would hinder her, anything that would hold her back, and she made haste. She went to the city, and she saith, as we read, I think it's somewhere about verse 20 of chapter 4, and she, we read of how she, she said unto the men, we're not going to go into the whole history of that, but she had a rapport with the men that very few others had, and she used that to bring them to Christ. There's people that you will have a rapport with that you know that nobody else in this church knows. Let me say this. Do your best to get them in on the Lord's Day evening. Spurgeon used to say to his, now his Metropolitan Tabernacle would have held 5,000 people. And you know what he said to them one night in the prayer meeting? Or he didn't call it the prayer meeting. He called it the... He had, he had friends over from America in one stage. And he was showing them around the church. They wanted to see the great metropolitan tabernacle. And he showed them the, the, the big halls and the big facade and the entrances. And then he turned around and he says to them, Do you want to see the boiler room? And they sort of looked at each other and, Well, we don't really want to see the boiler room. It's not really exciting where they burn the coal or the boiler room. But uh, we don't really want to annoy Mr. Spurgeon. So they sort of nodded, Yes, Show us the boiler room. And he took them down into the basement and he swung two big double doors open and there were about 400 people praying in the basement. He says, that's the boiler room. And he said to the boiler room, he said to the prayer meeting one night, he says, you know, it's your job to replenish this pool. I will keep fishing and fishing and fishing, but it's your job to keep new fish coming into the pool. Let me say, for your minister's encouragement more than anything else is to have somebody to preach to, especially in the gospel services. What are we 
uh, said far too much tonight. I didn't intend to say so much or say it so long. But what are we doing? What am I? What are you doing with your salvation? You think about that theme tonight. I apologize for going on so long. But 488, I believe there's a challenge even in that. We'll pick the hymns tonight deliberately. The last one asked the question, is your life a channel of blessing? Is the love of God flowing through you? And then 488, is it not a challenge to our hearts? Is this the prayer of our hearts? Remember what I said earlier, Christians shouldn't tell lies, but we can sing them. All to Jesus I surrender. You think of the communists in Richard Warmbrunt's book. As soon as they're saved, they immediately become soul winners, trying to seek others out after himself. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. We'll sing a verse just, and then we'll sing our chorus. Well, let us do that too. Let us change our position, and then we'll get down to our time of prayer, please. sing more later on. We'll see how we go. But the second words of the second verse say this, humbly at his feet I bow. Let us do that now, please. Let us still our hearts. I, I don't want to hear prayer tonight. Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I shouldn't say this, maybe I'm too forward. But I don't want to hear ritual prayer. I want to hear prayer from the heart. So pray as unto the Lord tonight and let us do business with him. Father, we do thank thee that thou art in this place. We thank the Lord that thou hast assured us of thy presence. Where the two or three are gathered together in my name. Do we read that in the scriptures? There am I in the midst. Lord, I pray that thou would bless us and help us and focus and tune our hearts tonight. That we might see a business and a work done for thee. Give grace tonight and help us to pray. In thy precious and holy name we do plead.